words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth below, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. (coughs) You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. NIV is a strange translation. It sounds like it's talking about aliens. Stranger, nor the stranger, nor the refugee within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, remember this is the context that they're in from last week. God speaking with Moses, they stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, well, you speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to them, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. And the people stayed at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Well, you'll be glad to know that we, I was planning to do all of this in one big batch. And then I thought, no, let's break it up and we'll do the first four today. And I'm away next week, going on wildflower touring with Taryn. Um, but Graham is preaching for us next week. Uh, but the week after that, we'll come back and we'll look at the second half of the Ten Commandments. Now, it's an interesting passage. We call it the Ten Commandments, but... I was quite intrigued to learn that in the Hebrew, the word ten doesn't appear in the text, and the word commandment doesn't appear in the text. This is just the words that God spoke. This is just God speaking to his people. And as I say, we're dividing it into two groups. The first one, two, three, four of them uh, are our duty to God, or the Israelites' duty to God, and five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten is duty to neighbor, duty to those around us. The very first thing that God says, which is interesting, God doesn't start off straight away and says, you must or you must not. By the way, um, there's a lot of you must not, isn't there? Um, We'll come back to this in a couple of weeks' time, but just just something to think about. Somebody said, uh, uh, you must not is much more freeing than a you must. You must limits you to one thing. You must not limits you to not doing one thing. It's much more freeing for God to say, you shall not. But that's, that's in two weeks' time. So listen to what God says to them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God starts speaking to his people by reminding them of who he is and reminding them of, of who they are in relation to him. 
He says to them basically, I am the one who has saved you. I am, to use Christianese, I am your redeemer. I am your rescuer. In other words, the people of Israel have been taken out of the land of slavery, taken out of the drudgery and the the oppression that they had here, and they've been brought out. They have been rescued. And now God turns to them and says to them, well, this is what a life of someone who has been rescued by me should look like. And so often we come to the Ten Commandments and we say, well, it's about law, it's about commandments, it's about you must and you must not. But but right at the beginning, verse, verse 2 of chapter 20, God says, actually, when I talk about the commandments, they are useless unless we first talk about grace. Well, they're not useless, but, but they're given in the context of grace. God doesn't go to some random country and say, here are my ten commandments. God goes to those whom He has saved, whom He has rescued, who are in a relationship with Him, who are already His people, and He says, here then is how you should live. And that's why I say I wonder if, if, if our country should... Well, I think it's good that we base our stuff on the ten commandments because it, it, it covers something of what God says, but... But should we go to a non-Christian and say to them, you must do this? How can we? God doesn't take to the, to the non-Christian, to the non-Israelite nations and say, here are my commandments. He comes to his own people and says, you then, you then must live like this. And remember what we've seen over the past few weeks is that the reason God has made this nation and called them holy, and called them apart from the other nations, is so that everyone else will look at them and turn to God. And this is part of it. The reason God says to His people, you are to live holy lives, and this is what it looks like, is so that the other nations will turn to God. You know, living a good life, if you tick off all of the Ten Commandments, if you do all of them, or don't do all of them, and you die and you stand before the judgment throne, God is going to look at you and go, well, that's very nice, but did you know me? Did you know me? The Ten Commandments are in the context of knowing God. And then the context of grace. They're not about putting new chains around the Israelites. They're about saying you are free and this is what a free life looks like. (coughs) It's useless to have the Ten Commandments in terms of eternity unless you first have a relationship with God. Oh, you'll live a good life, I'm sure, and society would be better for it. Much better for it. But at the end of the day, God's not concerned about whether we were good citizens in society completely. He's concerned about whether we know Him. That's why He says to the Israelites, hey, before you get bogged down in legalism and ticking off boxes, remember, I am your God and I have rescued you. Grace always comes first. Isn't that amazing? We, we so often think Old Testament is Lord. And New Testament is, ah, oh, love and God is so kind. But Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, where the law is at its strongest, God turns around and says, actually, it's all based on grace to start with. I love that. 
Recently, I, I, I don't know when I started, it must be about four months ago, um, a, a line has been repeated in my prayers. Um, it goes something along the lines of, um, Lord, I pray that I would honor you with all that I think and all that I say and all that I do. And actually, what, what's fascinating is this week I started looking at the, the Ten Commandments and I was reading a book and they said, well, there's a pattern to the, the Ten Commandments and the pattern is what we think and what we say and what we do. And the second half is what we do and what we say and what we think. What we think and what we say and what we do. And the first two commandments, commandments one and two, are deal with what we think. What does God say here? He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now this isn't God's subtle way of saying, well actually there are other gods around, so just make sure you worship me alone because I'm the bestest. This is God saying, hey, I know how alluring it is. I know the allure of other religions. I know the allure of, of that, that, that style of, of religion where if you do enough, then God will look after you. That's what most of the gods in those days and even today um, say. They, they, they say that if you worship me enough, if you serve me enough, if you honor me enough, then I will look after you. It's box ticking. At Super Club this week, we're hearing about uh, how Elijah uh, wiped out the prophets of Baal. Brilliant story. One of my favorite Old Testament stories. The whole nation had fallen into worshiping Baal. Why? Because he was tangible. There was an idol there that you could look at. And, and it seemed to work. If you ticked all the boxes, then Baal would provide rain. God did something about that. Sort of showed him up. Remember a few weeks back we were looking at 1 Corinthians 8 and Paul says that there is no God but one, but, but he also says that we live in a world where there are many gods and many lords. And we saw Paul speaking about the fascination that they have on people, especially if you're coming out of worshipping other gods. Faith in the one God never goes untested. Um, it's, it's always tempting to adopt a little bit here and take a little bit here and bring a little bit in from there. I've heard quite a few times, oh, all religions are the same. We can just mix and match. Well, there's an insight in Buddhism, isn't there? Well, well let's, let's take the, the insight from Buddhism. Oh, it's, it's so helpful to do yoga with the transcendental meditation. So let's do that too. For the Israelites, oh, well, the people living in the land worship the Asherah poles and, and they, they seem to be going pretty well, so it must be working for them, so let's do that. God says, while I'm around, and by the way, I'm around forever because I'm God. Nobody but me. I am your savior. Unlike everyone else, you are to worship me alone. 
And it's not just the act of worship. It is the thought. Do we put God first in our thoughts? We might not worship idols or baals or asherah poles. But is the honor and glory of God utmost in our mind? Or do we worship our family? Or do we worship the lifestyle that we live? You all know the temptations that you have to worship other than God. God says, me alone. God goes on and the second one is very similar to the first one. The first one says, no other gods. The second one says, no idols. Um, it might mean idols of other gods, but, but I think perhaps it means <coughs> making an idol of the one God. He says, don't make an idol in the form of anything in heaven on, or on the earth or in the waters. Don't bow and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God so loves us that, that he cannot bear it when our loyalties are divided. In other words, God says, don't confuse in your thinking the one who made you with the stuff that he made. Don't confuse in your thinking the maker with his goods. And if you identify the one God with any, with any particular image or, or idol or anything... That, that is one small, small step from thinking of God in terms of that thing. You see, back in those days, the, the core of religion, the reason you made an idol, um, they didn't think that if you made an idol, all of a sudden there, a God sprung into existence when you carved it and finally finished it. The thinking of the religions in those days is that you made an idol in a particular shape, and then the God who was already floating around would come in and your idol would be kind of like a, like a magnet to the God. And he'd be hold, held there and if you did the right things and you worshipped him well enough in the presence of this idol where the God is, then you would kind of placate him and, and he'd be happy with you and then everything would go well with you. God's saying here, don't make an idol and try and trap me. Don't try and worship me on your terms. Your thinking has to be right. You have to think and realize that I am the God who made everything. Do you really think that if you put a chair here with just enough ooh, feng shui that I'm going to be stuck there? That's what idols were. You know, anything can take the place of God. Uh, idols... Uh, there's, there's an incident in Numbers chapter 21 where, where the people have, as usual, been rather stupid. Um, and God has sent snakes amongst them. And they're all dying because the snakes are biting them. And, and God says to Moses, well, make this, this snake on a stick out of bronze and stick it in the ground. And anyone who looks to it will be saved. They won't die. And he does it and it happens. And people don't die because they look to the pole and trust in the power of, the God, to, of God to save them. 
But the horrible thing is that in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, King Hezekiah takes that very safe, self-same pole that Moses stuck in the ground that the people looked at and recognized that God alone is God and trusted God to save them. They had taken that pole, which was a symbol of God, and they'd started burning incense to it. Luther says, whatever your heart clings to, that properly is your God. And it could be a good thing that reminds us of God. But even good things that remind us of God can usurp God's place in our lives. I watched a video uh, this week, I think Dallas Willard, he said about spiritual disciplines, he said, if you read your Bible out of guilt, you got it completely wrong. Because you think that God insists on you doing something in order to be happy with Him. A while back, I took up journaling. And a while back, I stopped it. Because I could not get to sleep if I hadn't journaled. I'm serious. I must journal because God won't be happy with me if I don't. How stupid. But how easy for us to fall into those traps. By the way, journaling is a great. By all means, journal. Speak to God on paper. But don't do it if it takes the place of speaking to with God. God says he's jealous. He says there are consequences for us rejecting him. And those consequences go down the line. You know, it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? If, if you turn against God, then your children turn against God. And your, their children have never heard about God and their children don't know the stories of God. Generation after generation after generation. And God says that he blesses those. Thousand generations of those who love him and obey him. Well, isn't that fantastic? If we think of God properly and we don't try and tie him down, he... You try and tie him down, you end up with less than what you hoped for. You don't tie him down, you're blessed till you don't know what to do with it anymore. God is just extravagant in his goodness. So those are the two thinking ones. Don't think of God as being like any other God, because he's not, he's the only one. Don't think that God can be tied down and localized and and idolize. Don't, don't think of God in terms, and, and don't think of anything else as God, because God alone is God. But what about what we say? You know, it, it's very easy to read the Ten Commandments here and say, well, uh, it just says, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Right? Easy. Don't say Jesus as a swear word. Okay, let's move on. Target's got that promotion, oh my gawk. I don't like it. But then again, why don't I like it? I thought about this and says, I don't like it because they're insulting God. But at the end of the day, God didn't say to 
people outside of his people, outside of Israel, outside of the church. He didn't say to them, do not misuse my name. He said it to us. It it, it is horrible and it is sad and it is wrong and God will judge it. All those who misuse his name, God will judge it, not me. That's what he says. He will judge, not us. But as much as it is horrible to hear a non-Christian swear using the name of our Lord, can you imagine one of God's people? Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. How horrible is that? People who know God, who has done so much, he said to them right at the beginning, I brought you out of slavery. I've done so much for you. I'm the only God. Uh, you've got to have your thinking right about me. And now you're going to turn around and thinking properly about me and thinking about me as the one God, you're going to turn around and swear using my name? See, what you say and what, what we say has to match what we think. And, and I love the order here because it starts with our thoughts. This week, uh, one of the Romans passages, chapter 12 and 13, I was speaking to Colin about this the other day. Chapter 12, Paul says, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by letting God renew your mind. And the next chapter says, and don't let yourself think about ways to satisfy your evil desires. Paul says it starts with your thinking. It starts with the transforming of your mind. But, but if your mind is right, if your thinking is right, then you've got to speak right as well. There are Christians who swear and who speak crassly. And I hope that they are still new Christians. And I hope you know that we're all, to some degree, new Christians in that aspect. So what we think and what we say. What about what we do? Commandment number four is one of those which has been abused so much. Keep the Sabbath. Oh, you went out to Red Rooster and you bought a chicken on Sunday. Whew. Let's not even begin with the idea that you went to play sport. God's going to hate you so much. I think it was yesterday's reading in Romans. Paul says, one person considers one day as holy and another person considers all day as holy. Whatever day you choose, do it for the glory of God. It's not about the particular day. It's about... It's about copying God. And I think this, this speak, uh, this, this commandment about the Sabbath day goes beyond just the Sabbath. And I think it's, it's an indicator that part of our duty as Christians is to think right about God, is to speak right about God, but it is also to be imitators of God. And we see that in the New Testament as well. Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ, who is the very image of God. So the Israelites are told to remember the Sabbath, and it's not just something in their head. Um, it's something that they've got to do and, and put into practice. 
keep the Sabbath holy. It's a day of rest dedicated to the Lord. Um, it's not about doing more to make God happy. It's about resting in what God has done. And it's interesting. Um, the Israelites in all of the ancient Near East were the only people to have, like every seventh day was a break day. The others broke according to when the sun was in this quadrant and the moon was over here and all the gods were aligned. The Israelites just said, nope, every seventh day, I don't care what's happening in the sky. We're just breaking every seven days to rest. Why? Well, because that's what God did. He worked for six days and he rested and he said, this is fantastic. And God comes to his people now and he says, as my people, if you want to live a holy life, if you want the nations to look at you, if you want to be holy, well, I'm holy. Do as I did. Do as I did. Take a break. And it's not have a day off. It's take a break and relax in who God is. That's what all the rules and regulations were about, is to say, you know what, it's not about anything else. It's about God. This is, this is more than just keeping a particular day. This is about imitating God. You see, the Ten Commandments are not the sum total of what it means to live a holy life. They are they're like highlights. Summary statements almost, if you will. Keep the Sabbath. Why? Because God does. Principle, the lesson, do what God does. And so what do we do when we see people in need? Well, what would God do? If we see the poor and the sick, what did Jesus do? He went to them. He spent time with them. With the outcasts, what would Jesus do? He went with them. He spent time with them. He told them about his love. He, he saved them. He healed some of them. You see what this is? This is God saying right at the beginning of Exodus chapter 20, at the start of the Israelite nation, he says to them, think right about me, speak right about me, and do like I do. It sounds very New Testament to me. Well, but it's Old Testament. Should we keep them? Well, yes. We can't keep the laws to make God happy. We've got to come back to the very first verse, chapter chapter 20, verse 2. God says, remember who I am. Remember my grace. Remember that I've saved you. Now live a holy life. Isn't that exactly what God says to us in Jesus Christ? He says, I have saved you, I have made you, I have called you to be my own. And by my Spirit, I will make you into more of what Jesus is. You see, this is not just a list of commandments. This is a glance into who God is. And God's not going to be happy with us just for keeping them. God's already happy with us because he saved us. 
I think the spirit of the Ten Commandments is still there for us because it is the spirit of God. The difference here, the difference here is that unlike in the Old Testament, we have the spirit of God in us. Hey, we're still going to flop and fail and fall. But our salvation doesn't depend on it. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. What grace does for us is to give us the freedom to boldly imitate God and to think of Him. Should we be shocked when non-Christians don't keep the laws? We should be saddened, but shouldn't be shocked. Breaking the laws, breaking the Ten Commandments, if you're not a Christian, is the least of your worries because you're already not right with God. And if we so emphasize the laws to people and say, well, God says you must and God says you mustn't, aren't we going to confuse them and say, you know what, first of all, it's not about must and mustn't, it's about Jesus loves you. We've got to get the order right. We've got to get the order right. It's not do, 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 and then think. It's think, speak, do. You've got to know God before you can speak rightly about Him. You've got to know God before you can imitate Him. Because, as the New Testament says, apart from God, we are unable to do any good work. I guess non-Christians don't need a, a, a veneer of goodness. They don't need to look like they keep God's laws. I've got a Muslim mate. He's fantastic at keeping law. Better than I am, probably. But what he needs to know is that God loves him. Because you can't actually keep the law unless you know God. It starts with your head, through your mouth and into your hands.